You're listening to the Second Corinthians Weakness and Strength Sermon Series, preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. You'll take your Bibles and let's look for the last time. Second Corinthians chapter thirteen. You're looking at verses eleven to fourteen. Paul says in verse 11, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. What a great way to close. There are some portions of Scripture that you think in this small little segment, if we would just take what it says and strive to do what it says, it would revolutionize our lives. And I think in here, in verse 11, we see just that. This short little verse that could change our lives completely. We find as Paul comes to a conclusion here, he's talking to the church of Corinth. It is a church that was fractured, a church that was selfish, a church that had a number of unhealthy um, personal conflicts within. And now he's going to close out this letter and give them the God-centered solution to the problems at Corinth. God-centered solution to the problems in Corinth. And we might think this evening, well, it's the church of Corinth, and it has nothing to do with us. But I have to tell you, the attitudes and spirit of first century Corinth are certainly alive in 21st century Chatham. They're there. And so Paul, as he wraps up this letter now, He wants to get the point across, I want this church to see God's solution to your problems. So, he says in verse 11, finally, brethren, farewell. I'm signing off. I'm out of here. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I'm going to Florida. I'm done with this. I'm finished. I'm signing off now. You've had the letter you received from me. Farewell. It's time now to tie up these loose ends. And so, as I do this, I want you to know God's solution to the problems of the church. And again, I'm thankful this evening. This is not the church of Corinth. I'm really thankful for that. Really thankful for that. But the truth is, if this is God's solution for Corinth, I think as we see it tonight, we'll see it's God's solution for us, too, to have a church that is vibrant and holy and loving and right. And so he says, farewell. Here's how we solve the problem of Corinth. Verse 11 says, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect. That makes sense. You want to solve the problem in Corinth, just have everyone be perfect. Easy enough. When we were raising our kids, (laughs) we had three rules in our home, and only three. Number one, you could not lie. It's a good rule. You can't help liars, ever. If someone's a liar and never admit they have a problem, you can't help them. They could not lie. Their worst punishment was for lying. Number two, they could not hit one another. We were raising men. We didn't want them to resolve conflicts with their hands. They weren't allowed to hit each other. They could box. They could wrestle. They could slap box. But they could not hit each other when they were mad or angry. And rule number three, no direct disobedience, which, if you're thinking about it, covers everything. That's the rule. It doesn't, it, it's kind of tricky there, but whatever I tell you to do, you have to do it. It's almost like this thing, hey, church, I want to solve the problems. Here's God's answer for you. I want you to be perfect. 
which is great. The problem is the word perfect is a little unusual there because it doesn't mean what we often think it means. And it's even more unusual here. Look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, because the word perfect that Paul uses here, katartizo, is the same word we find in Matthew chapter 4, which is very interesting. <coughs> Jesus goes and he sees the brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they're mending their nets, and he called them. That word mending there is the same word that Paul uses for the church when he says, I want you to be perfect. They were mending, they were repairing, they were fixing what was wrong. The word is used again in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. The same word when he says, Brother, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore. Restore. The same word. It has the idea of putting things in order, fixing something that is broken. And so Paul comes to the church and says, listen, if you want God's solution, a God-centered solution to the problems of your church, of any church, we need to be perfect. We need to straighten ourselves out. Can I tell you something? You can't change anyone but yourself. Right? If you're going to take your life trying to change everybody out there, you will fail time and time again. But what we can change by God's grace is ourselves. And Paul says, this is what we should be striving for as a church, as a body of believers, to restore, to fix that which is broken in our own lives and to the best of our ability in the lives of others. So God's solution for all of us, for Corinth and his church, is to be perfect. Straighten yourself out. Mend and restore. Okay? Number two. He says, be perfect. This is what we should be striving for. Number two, we should strive to be of good comfort. Be of good comfort. The idea there is to call near for comfort, to exhort, to encourage. Listen to me. In the church of Jesus Christ, there must be correction. There must be. The church is not a social club. The church is the body of Christ. We're called to holiness. We must have correction. We must have rebuke. We must have confrontation. And when we, we must do it the right way. We have failed miserably at times of doing the right way, but we, might, we must do that. But listen to me. As important as those things are, we as a body of believers, God tells us that we must encourage one another. This world is awfully discouraging. And people can be awfully discouraging. And the truth is, everyone in this room, we need encouragement. I don't care who you are. We need to be encouraged, man. For, for years, I, I, I tried to you know, evaluate myself and think, what, what's the reason that I do what I do? Why do I do what I do? And, and I, I would like to think that sometimes I do what I do because the love of Christ constrains me. Uh, those times are probably few and far between, to be honest with you. I, I think I know of times when the love of Christ has constrained me, and I've seen the power of that. It's a beautiful thing. I saw it a few months ago when I sat in a room with Maria Pelche, and the love of Christ constrained me to give the gospel to her. It was beautiful. But the truth is, I know my own heart. Often I do what I do because of duty. 
I do. Hey, you're a husband. You're a father. You're a man. Go work. Go get up in the morning and go work. Do what you're supposed to do. Take care of your kids. Feed them at night. Whatever. This is your duty. Um, Prepare a message. Preach the word. It's your duty. And so I always thought about myself that I do what I do because of duty. Yes, sir. You know? Just do. I don't need you to pat me on the back. I don't need encouragement. I don't need any of that. That's what I believe for a long, long time. I don't need someone every morning to tell me, you're really a good person, and you can make it. Believe in yourself. Right? I don't, but you could try that every now and then, Kim, if you like to. <laughs> it ain't happening, I know. I, I don't feel like I need that, and I don't. But I was amazed years ago, uh, it was probably 10, maybe 12 years ago now, we went to St. Thomas to hear my pastor, Roy Thompson, speak in St. Thomas. Roy Thompson was a man that was bigger than life, honestly. He started a church in Cleveland with his family, and, and, and God used him to, to do a great work there. He was loud. He was, he was a man's man. He was and really respectable. I respected him, loved him, and appreciated him. Served for 50 years as a pastor. And then after that, was used to, uh, to preach and to minister. And I'll never forget going into that auditorium, and the service had started, and for some reason, he was giving announcements. And as he was giving announcements, Kim and I walked in the back of the auditorium, and he stopped, and he looked right at us. And he said, those are two, two of my pups, is what he said. That, uh, apparently, that's a term of endearment, right? Two of my dogs. He said, those are two of my pups, and I'm really proud of them. And I, <coughs> I just thought... What that did for me that night, I couldn't believe that word of encouragement blessed my heart. And I thought, I don't need it. And the truth is, I did need that. That was encouraging to me. That motivated me, helped me. And the truth is, hey, life is hard. Everybody comes to you with a problem. Nothing is right. You catch your kids. They're breathing wrong, Right? And we've got to get in our heads that there's so much bad out there. We are called as a body of believers to encourage one another. Listen to this in Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver, right? And the idea is it's beautiful. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always with grace. Always with grace. And I just think it would do us well if we were striving to be perfect, to repair, to mend, to fix in our own lives, if we were striving to be encouraging, if instead of looking at some of these young mothers that you think, man, they don't have it together, they got 50 kids that are following around at the marriage thing. Why don't you try to encourage them? Why don't you go over and grab one of those kids and love on them? Why don't you see a young man who's struggling, and you, older man, go put your armor next to him and say, listen, you're going to be okay. I know it's hard. It's it's difficult. You can do this. You can make it. You can be what God called you to be. We need to be encouraging. We need it. You need it. I need it. It's the body of Christ. Be encouraging. And then he says, give good comfort. Be of one mind. Be of one mind. And again, what I'm trying to get the point across is, this is what we ought to be striving for, every one of us. Okay? Repair, um, fix, mend, encourage, be of one mind. <clears throat> it does not mean we all have the same opinions. It, it doesn't mean that. It, it doesn't mean we all like the same things. 
Like, man, I really like Nike tennis shoes and jean shorts, and we have some kind of cult going on that we all wear the same things. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean we find the lowest common denominator that we can agree on, and we worship with that, nor does it mean that we avoid doctrine just for the sake of grace. Listen to me. There is diversity in the body of Christ, and it's a beautiful thing. We are different. And, and just panning across the room tonight, there is real diversity here. And it's a beautiful thing. And the gospel light attracts a lot of strange bugs. A lot of strange bugs. Believe me, a lot of strange bugs. <laughs> There's diversity in the body of Christ. And it's a good thing. But regardless of diversity, we must live in unity of purpose. We, as a body of believers, must have the same mind on what's really important. When I was a kid, we would have, in Cleveland, the Blue Angels, the Navy Air Force team. They would fly, and they would do the air shows in Cleveland. And I learned later that the way they keep all of those planes in line when they do all their maneuvers is this. The lead guy knows what he's doing, and everyone else focuses on one bolt on the plane in front of them. Just one bolt. That's all they look at. That's why when you see a guy crash, four planes plummet to the ground. They're not looking at anything else other than a bolt on the plane. And Paul, seeing a church that's fractured, seeing a church that's selfish, seeing a church that everyone wants to do their own thing, says, listen, it's imperative that we have one mind. There ought to be one thing that is the most important thing for the body of Christ. Do you want to guess what that one thing has to be? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we lose sight of that, we're in trouble. Our lives are given so that you and I make the gospel look attractive. Attractive. And when churches start looking all around at different things in different areas and forget about the gospel, about proclaiming his good news, about living for his glory, about living a life that's worthy of him, then we have fractures, then we have trouble, then we have people fighting over the rolls of toilet paper and how they go on the rack and the colors on the walls and all the nonsense. It does not matter at all. You know what matters? If this church as a body says the most important thing that we do is proclaim and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, when the church does that, there is real harmony, even with diversity, even with different ideas, even with different kind of, well, doctrinally, I might be here, I might be there, but the truth is, the main thing is the main thing, and it must stay the main thing. He goes on. <coughs> he says, and live in peace. Live in peace. This is the beauty of the Christian life, that as the world falls apart, we have peace. We can live in peace. We have peace because we have been reconciled to God. What greater peace is there? And not only that, we serve the Prince of Peace. And God says, listen, I want you to live in peace. Romans chapter 14, verse 19, says, follow after the things which make for peace and things which without one, I can't read my writing, things wherewith one may edify one another. He says, look it, live a life that we're pursuing, we're following after peace. And that peace is not like, oh, I have peace and quiet now. The content of this letter in 
Corinthians. And what Paul is saying is Romans is the body of Christ. This peace with one another, edifying, encouraging, living peaceable with one another. And we ought to strive for that. Quit looking for drama. Some of you folks, you like drama. You're not happy unless there's drama. That gets real old. I have family members from my side of the family. So it's not Greg and Joyce, <coughs> if you're wondering. But they're not happy unless they're unhappy. And they're always looking for fussing and fighting. And people come to church, it's like everything's wrong. I want to start a fight with them. And they looked at me the wrong way. They took my seat there in my parking spot. I said hi to them, and they didn't, they didn't acknowledge me. I'll tell you a story. You're not, yeah. Jim, how long have you been coming to church here? Three years. When Jim first came to our church, <coughs> I remember him walking through the doors, and I looked at Jim, and while I was preaching the entire time, it looked as if he was scowling at me. I thought, that jerk. We don't need guys here like that. You got an attitude? Take your attitude right on out of here, right? That, this is how I think on a Sunday morning. This is how spiritual I am. It's going through my mind. <laughs> Do you know why Jim was scowling? He couldn't hear me. In trouble hearing, right? I don't want to go picking a fight with Jim. That wasn't a problem. The problem was not he hated me. Maybe he does hate me now. But the problem was, the problem was he couldn't hear me. But I could have been offended by that, caused trouble with that. It would have been foolishness. Hey, love thinks no evil. Maybe they didn't hear you. Maybe their mind's full. Maybe someone in their family is really struggling. Live in peace. And watch what happens now. As the church strives to do these things, to repair, to fix, to encourage, to be unified with one mind, to live in peace. The end of verse number 11, he says, And the God of love and peace shall be with you. When the church strives to do these things, here's what happens. The presence of God's love and peace is in that place. And that changes everything. That, that's the gospel. That's, okay, I'm saved. I'm a new creature. Um, I'm repairing. I'm mending. I'm encouraging. I'm, I'm unified with one cause. <laughs> I'm living for peace. The gospel's important to me. And for too many of us, the gospel's not important to us. So why would it be important to the world? It's not attractive anymore. Why? Because we're going through the motions and God is even there. Because when we do this, God's love and God's peace is present. And when it's present, people know. They know. Too many churches use gimmicks and tricks and marketing to get people into their churches. Do you know why? Because that's all they know. They don't believe the gospel. They don't believe in the power of God. They don't believe in his presence. But I want to tell you something. When he's there, people are drawn to him. And when we come as a body of believers and we're striving for this, God shows up. And when he shows up, oh, it's a beautiful thing. And the problems in Corinth are solved. The problems in Chatham are solved. Because he shows up. Verse number 12. This was my life verse as a teenager. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Right? 
And, and listen, he, he's speaking here to a church of Jew, Gentile, different social structures, different classes of people, different backgrounds. And what he's saying is, I want there in the church to be visible affection. When people come into the church, they should know that they really do love each other. They love each other like a family. That's a church, right? If I were to ask you this evening, what's one thing about this church that you love? I think it wouldn't take very long before you would say, it feels like a family, right? Right. And that's what it's supposed to feel. Hey, there's no blue collar, white collar, no collar, life beaters. There's, there's none of that. It's a family. And when we come, we are to show affection for one another. Years ago, when I first started coming here, we had a lady come, and she brought a guy with her. And the guy was sort of out of it. His name was Dwayne. He'd come, he'd show up, and, and he really didn't participate much. The truth was, he was a lot of work when he came here. A lot of work. And then something started happening over time. He started to bring a bag of chips to the picnic. He started to clean up afterwards. Maybe not very good, but he started to clean up afterwards. He then started going to the nursing home and ministering there. And there was a sense like he really belonged. And when he had the accident, no one said, oh, it's just a wait. No one said that. We grieved. We prayed. We visited. We ministered. Family. Family. And that has to stay that way. Listen to me. If that's what you love about this place and it's good, then when people come here, treat them like family. We had a young couple just baptized today. A beautiful thing. If you think about it, baptized a year and one week after they buried their mother. You should invite them into the family. You should go track them down and say, we're so glad you're part of this place. Why don't we get a coffee? Why don't you come over? Why don't we invest in them? Listen, love does not divide. Our children think that, right? Firstborn, it's his world. Second one comes and he hates it because there's someone else there. And the kid thinks that our love then is we divide it. You get this much, you get that much. It doesn't work that way, does it? That love multiplies. You can have 12 kids, and that love multiplies. And in the church, it multiplies. And so Paul says, hey, listen, we're a family. Treat each other with love. Verse number 14. So all the saints salute you, verse number 13. And he closes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. And we look at that and think, well, that's fantastic. That's certainly a formula for the Trinity. And it is. It's, it's powerful. It certainly is powerful. One God, three distinct persons, co-equal in eternity, nature, will, and being. But I don't think that's Paul's point here. I don't think he's wanting to slip in a teaching about the Trinity here. Nor do I think he just is going, well, it's time to end the service, and so we're just going to pray like we always do, so let me just shoot up this prayer. This is a prayer for the church. This is part of God's solution for the church. And he wants them to have grace, love, and communion, or fellowship. 
And what he wants is that God would accomplish this in them. This prayer is a prayer, a cry for help. Because the only way (coughs) to do what verse 11 tells us to strive for, right? Repairing, mending, encouraging the right way, um, being of one mind, living in peace, being affectionate one toward another. The only way that is possible is by the love of God, the grace of Christ, and the communion of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the only way. And so Paul closes and he says this, if you want the answer for a God-centered solution for the church, here's the answer. The God-centered answer is God himself. It's God himself. He doesn't come to the end and say, we just pray harder. He comes to the end and says, listen, the answer is God, all of him. And when we finally open our eyes and understand it's all about him, knowing him, experiencing him, loving him, then we can do these things. We can't do these things in our own strength. We try, we fail. But when he is central, when he is center, when we love him, and I'm, I'm concerned. I, I think about my own life, and I think about growing up in churches, and we are in a postmodern type of world today. Postmodern as far as Christianity goes. Post-Christian. Our kids aren't learning scripture. They're not learning what the true church is. I, I heard a report the other day that in a small group, a woman had a prayer request, and she got pregnant by um, in vitro fertilization. She was having triplets. And here was a request in a small group that people were praying about. I want you to pray that God would give me peace, and wisdom about knowing which child to abort. We have terminology, we have the words, we have 81% of Americans telling us they're Christians. They don't know the truth of the Word of God and who He really is. And if we're not careful, we can go through these motions and do the things, but if He's not there, we are wasting our time, and we will pay for that. And Paul says at the end, listen, the demands are way too great. Here's the solution to Corinth. Here's the solution to any church. The solution is God himself. And when we get serious about serving and seeking him, it will change our lives. It will change our hearts. It will change our churches. And we will repair and mend. And we will encourage. We'll we'll have to. We will have to. We'll have one mind. We'll know what's most important. We'll strive to live in peace. And the world will know that the family of God meets here. No matter the color of their skin or the amount of money they make, their livelihood or lack of it, we are the people of God. And Paul says, this is a solution for any church. Let's have a word of prayer this evening.